Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. It is the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm Andrew Musgrove and of course I'm joined by John Gibson. We are back recording this for YouTube as well. And as you can see, I'm wearing our nice branded The Everything Is Black and White podcast t-shirt. We do have a Gibbo's Corner t-shirt as well. I'm sure you've seen it knocking about on social media. John, it's sweltering here. That's why you haven't got your shirts on. Correct, correct, correct it is. But we can stand it. We need a bit of sunshine on us, Geordies, before the season starts. Yes, we're going to stay away from the pre-season. We're recording this uh, the day after Newcastle's defeat to York. Hopefully, by the time you hear this, Newcastle will have made one or two signings in the transfer window, but we won't Mm. hold our breaths. Um, We've been kind of scraping along for the next episode of this and we've come up with a really good one I think and it is the best Newcastle United partnerships yep. obviously the first thing that springs to mind is strikers um, but I just want to get first of all your opinion on what makes a good partnership whether that be strikers midfielders centre-backs full-backs what in your opinion mm. makes a good partnership I think it, it's understanding between the pair because you can throw in good players good individual players together and they don't they won't necessarily gel uh, it's a matter of known if you're an attacker known seeing the other ones run very early um, and therefore being able to play the right ball if defensively went to drop off and just cover your partner in a critical situation it is gelling together and it's gelling together on the field of play it doesn't matter if you're friends or you're not friends off the park that has got nothing to do with it. It is football intelligence, I guess. And um, we'll go into it in some detail, but uh, you know, in comparing some partnerships with others, you can talk about other partners, the number one guy had, and they just didn't really work. Uh, these are what works. And of course, we want to start with the fighter pilots, the poster boys, uh, because strikers are what it's about in Newcastle. Number nine legends, goal scorers, they're the guys that grab the headlines. They're the guys that live in our memory. And so let's look at those first. And we're going to start with two men who many fans will consider the best ever strikers to have played. Newcastle, probably in living memory. I'm not talking about Correct. War Correct. Jackie knows that went before because a lot of people, or most people listening to this, uh, wouldn't have been around to see him of play. Um, we're starting with Alan Shearer and Les Ferdinand. Just one season they played together, unfortunately. Yep. Uh, and we both know that they wish they'd played uh, more seasons together. We all do. Um, I've got the stats here. So they played in that 96-97 season, of course, the one where Keegan famously walked out in the January. Yeah. Um, they scored 49 goals between them that season, which is a remarkable amount. Not the highest ever scored, and we'll get onto that later on with another two familiar names, but a fantastic tally nonetheless. And they were just just brilliant. Individually, they were, they were brilliant. Um, and then together, collectively, many people thought it wouldn't work, but goodness me, didn't it just... Oh, I mean, it was said quite openly by an awful lot of people, and I'm not talking about fans, I'm talking about uh, hacks and pundits, that they would never be able to play together because there were two target man men, it was said, and each one would want to play that role 
that ultra-central role and there would be no partnership because they would be doing each other's jobs. Um, nothing could have been further from the truth the way it worked and the great sadness of Newcastle United was that it just worked, it was just together for one season. Um, and both have paid huge tribute. I mean, Farland Shearer, to say, the best partner partnership that he had was with Ferdinand when it lasted one season. When you think of all the, the, the people he played with, Beardsley and Bellamy, etc., etc., up here, and with England, Sheringham was a wonderful partnership with England. Um, Sutton was a successful partnership with Blackburn when they won the, um, the championship. Uh, but these two just went together magnificently, as you, and it was at the climax of the entertainers, and so it was at the wonderful part of the entertainers. They had gone higher and higher, higher season by season, and they finished off, of course, by back-to-back -back seasons being runners-up in the Premier League. The first season without Shearer, Ferdinand was the first to arrive, and he he played one season here in the number nine shirt, and. Um, I mean, he was everything that Newcastle fans would want. He was big, he was bold, he was good-looking, he had a regal presence about him, hence the, the, the Sir Les uh, tale. Newcastle had chased him for 18 months before they got him. Uh, he signed in June 1995, 6 mil. Aston Villa had bumped the price up because they were in from when Newcastle realised it's now or never, stuck the money down and got a bloke who Beardsley was, went on to say was the best header of the ball he'd ever seen in the whole of his career. Um, I mean, he was a larger-in-life character, Ferdy. He was 28-year-old when he signed for Newcastle. That would be too old for Mike Ashley, by the way. He wouldn't be worth having because he's, his best days are gone. Oh, yeah? His two years in Newcastle were his best days. He was 28. He was entering his prime. He'd learned football the hard way. Uh, I'm not saying that's necessary, but it has its advantages. He'd begun in non-league football with Hayes, who, in fact, received £600,000 on a sell-on clause when Newcastle paid the £6 million. And I always remember going down to Hayes with Gateshead when I owned Gateshead to play a game and walking in the boardroom and there was this huge uh, Les Ferdinand shirt framed and signed by Les. Uh, and I said, hey, that's the best deal you've ever done in your life. Not only did he get a couple of quid when he moved into league, but he got 600,000 when he, when he moved to Newcastle. And I mean, his first season here as a number nine, which was the season when we blew the 12 point lead over Manchester United. Um, I mean, he was phenomenal. Listrim, wasn't he? Just oh, unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it, and this is a guy that suffered, a, a, was carrying a hip injury that season. That a lot of people have forgotten. He scored 29 goals carrying a hip injury and without a great partner at his side. But Newcastle, and the tragedy is that in the run-in when Newcastle blew that 12-point lead, the, he was never as fit and as mobile as he had been earlier in the season because he had this hip injury. Uh, a lot wasn't made of that at the time, and of course it wasn't because you weren't going to tell the opposition what the problem was. But um, 
you know, they, it was a, a great tragedy, and the way that she, uh, that uh, Keegan tried to go around and get around the tragedy was by saying, well, we blew a 12-point lead, but I'm, I'm going to pay a world record fee to bring in Shearer to go with Ferdinand. Now see how we go the following season. And it, there's only... That was the difference, Andrew, with, with Keegan to other managers, other Newcastle managers and other managers we can think of today, whether it's Gareth Southgate with England, whether it's Steve Bruce with Newcastle United, and etc., etc. Keegan was a gambler. He, and he was a tack-minded gambler. He had been a forward himself, and all he was concerned about was scoring goals. If we score enough goals, it doesn't matter if we let in a few because we're scoring more than the opposition. So he would look at a Newcastle United situation where we blew 12-point lead and not say, I want a, a, a centre-half and two full-backs and a goalkeeper to, because if I can close up shop, we could have won the title. They scored a pile of goals. Ferdinand scored 29. He says, I need a centre-forward. Because that's the t and it, that's how the entertainers were so exciting. And I mean, we we don't look back now and think I wish she hadn't have done that because we got the memories of Shearer oh. and Finn again and Shearer in the in the years after. And I mean, and we never got closer. Andrew, you've got to remember two back to back runners up yeah. because although he went in the second season halfway through, it was his team that just continued and fulfilled the season. We. Since 1927, when they won the, the uh, last title, and even I wasn't a little uh, in my dad's eye at that time, um, this is as close as we've ever got, so it worked better than anything else has worked. So Shiva arrived, he obviously was going to get the number nine shirt, and he had to ask Les Ferdinand if he could take it. He was never going to take no for an answer. And I guess, given how well Ferdinand had done the season before in that shirt and all the history that went with it before he took it on, and he had matched many of the, the strikers who had worn it before him. Absolutely. It took some character for a man like that to say, do you know what, for the, for the, for the better of the people of Tyneside, for the better of the club, I am going to step aside, give Alan what he wants, and we'll show it together that, that in many ways, um, it's, it, you know, this football club is bigger than just a number. Yeah, um, I would like to give Les that sort of uh, credence and that sort of pat on the back, but it wasn't quite like that. <laughs> um, he was told by Keegan that uh, he didn't have the number nine shirt anymore, that the new signing was going to get the number nine shirt. And he was very, very, very dischuffed and made it abundantly clear to Keegan, I am not pleased. I scored 29 goals in this number nine shirt. Let him have the turn shirt. I've got it and I've justified having it by scoring 20. I can be one of the number nine legends because I've just proved it. And of course, he wasn't going to make the ultimate fuss about it because he was going to get a great partner. And um, he bowed to that, but he made no secret to me privately that uh, he was told by Keegan this is going to happen. And he told Keegan, well, you're the gaffer, you decide, but I'm not pleased. But he wanted to make Alan Shearer please. He just got it. He just spent a world record sum on Shearer, so he had to do it. And the interesting thing was, you know, everybody said they don't go together, but you know, the fish go with chips, the Batman go with Robin, does Morecambe go with Wise, milk and honey. They went together beautifully, um, and 
the 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 great sadness of that season i guess although we finished second top again we were never really in yeah. contention for the title like we were the previous season and um i think there was two reasons for that both suffered injuries for significant periods during that season uh, ferdinand and and shiva um still scored as you said 49 goals between them shiva got 28 ferdy got 21 but they were both missing for significant parts and the club had its end knocked in when keegan took to his toes because everything had been built round kk and i mean and he had reassured players he had stopped genola going to barcelona by saying stay here and we'll win the title because i'm going to make certain we do and we'll buy a top top signing in a world record signing was exactly that he had persuaded shira not to go so shira turned down manchester united and genola couldn't go to, to barcelona so they could be together and newcastle could win a title then kk takes to his toes halfway through the season so you can imagine how deflated a lot of key players were when that happened and felt certainly genola felt completely and utterly let down and eventually left the club as a consequence she was far too politically correct to ever suggested he felt let down by kk but there's no question that having come here instead of manchester united which guaranteed your medals because he thought that he, he would get a, a, a first division a premier league title with newcastle and that's the ultimate uh, and he came to do that and the tragedy is that the guy that moved in canny uh, canny dalglish who was to a great extent she was choice he didn't make the choice but he agreed with it because he'd won the title at blackburn with him but he took apart the um the entertainer side and he split the partnership between ferdinand and shira and you just can't believe that happened well it was interesting because i was reading back some quotes from les ferdinand from a few years ago and he said you know i never wanted to leave newcastle but he felt when kenny came in he said it was kind of a thing with english managers they want to rip apart the the former team because they do well and it's the former manager's team that's done well not the new manager um and of course you know can he try to persuade him to come back and interestingly in the quotes um so yeah, everyone knows the story he went down to spurs shearer got injured they tried to say please don't go um and, and fernand says he he calls called shearer and shearer said look i want you to come back but i understand the way you've been treated if you want to go to spurs boyhood club you know i totally understand where you're coming from and you end up obviously going to spurs and the rest is history um such a shame because but it is it is a dreadful shame but anybody would have done yeah. that andrew if you're told uh i mean dalglish made a plan that he just wanted to play with one man up front that man was always going to be shearer so he he decided to cash in on ferdinand that mm. they, they they wouldn't be able to play together he told ferdinand it was a bold decision for financial reasons ferdinand has never believed that in his life he believed that if dalglish had gone to the board and said 
if we keep Shearer and Ferdinand together, having finished second last season and they scored all those goals, we'll win the title this season. The board would have said, yeah, we'll yeah. do that. Because the board were as progressive in those days as Keegan was. That's how the Keegan could flourish and do everything he did, buying in all these players, because he got the approval of John Hall. And that would have continued at that stage. So Ferdinand never bought that. He was horrendously hurt. He went off to sign for Spurs. Then Shearer gets a horrendous injury pre-season at Everton. And then Freddie Fletch is asked to phone up Ferdinand, who was physically in London and walking to, to the meeting he's going to have with London, gets a phone call and is told... Why don't you come back? Shearer's got injured. Would like you to play for Newcastle. If Newcastle United, in the shape of Dark Leash, had turned their back on you and said, we want you out of this club, you're not going to jump on the next train back to Newcastle because Shearer's injured. When you, you know, you've been humiliated, you're going to say, sorry, pal, I'm on my way. You just want to, f- you want to feel wanted and loved. Correct. And that Correct. clearly wasn't an example Correct. of that. And It's funny now because you think about it, and we've discussed it in previous episodes, but... 30 years old, 6 million. And you think about that today, you think about the world's best players at this point in 2021. Oh. Messi, Ronaldo, you know, yeah, there's a few look others. Yeah, age. Yeah, they're well over 30, and you just think, goodness me, how times change. But let's talk about the ability of the two. They were, they were quite similar in many ways, good yeah, in the they air, were. they were strong. They had a bit of pace, but it, they weren't the fastest, but nope. I'll tell you what, faster than you or I. Um, and they knew uh, where the back of the net was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they dovetailed tremendously because they worked off each other and because all of a sudden if you're a defender coming to St James's Park and you're the number one defender who's good in the air and you think which one am I going to take the money or worse who takes the other one you kind of flip a coin don't you which oh, side of lands I mean you know it is frightening and if they work off each other near post far post etc etc they're going to cause chaos. And with the players that they had around them, it wasn't only their ability to score goals, and they had this wonderful ability to know where the net is, which is God-given. You've either got it or you haven't got it. You cannot coach it into players. Players that can't score goals don't suddenly start scoring goals because somebody's coached them in a different way. It is a natural instinct that you've got or you haven't got. And, I mean, a typical example of their ability to work off each other and for all the people around them to profit by their, them being there was when we beat Manchester United 5-0 and they both scored and it ended up with a chip by Albert. Um, that was... You could hold that up and say that was what the entertainers led by Ferdinand and Shearer were all about and the great tragedy was that that was broken up very quickly by Dalglish and then we ended up getting people like Bonds and Rush uh, and Tomlinson to come in I mean Bonds and Rush at the height were, were two of the greatest players this country's ever seen when they were at Liverpool but by the time they come to Newcastle, they were on a payday. They, they weren't the players they were at all. And so we smashed up that, that partnership to have those guys at this stage of their career 
I don't think so. But it's interesting, again, I, I read a stat when I was doing the research for this episode, and that season, that 96-97 season, only Manchester United scored more goals than Newcastle. The season after, only yep. Wimbledon scored less. Yep. So that puts it in perspective, because at the time, uh, Barnes and Rush were 34-35 at the moment. Memory serves me correct. So it was a weird decision. But you mentioned the My United game then, and that was where I was going to end when it comes to Sheeran and Ferdinand was that, like you said, is the perfect example because you know, they've both gotten the, the score sheet. But what stands out in my mind is that cross from Shearer for Ferdinand's goal. He's into the corner. Uh, he pulls it back. Uh, Ferdinand heads it. It's off the bar and in. Uh, Martin Tyler, yeah, Ferdinand, of course, off the bar, of course. And then Shearer and the celebration of the My United fans in the court. It was remarkable. I, mean, I think that moment yes. sums it up. And and that mo- that moment summed up the fact that there were a partnership. Yeah. Because a lot of strikers that don't go together because they irritate one another because they only want to do one job, and that's been playing in the centre of the field and being the target man. Um, a lot of people saw that as something that couldn't happen. Shearer actually being out wide and, and setting up Ferdinand. And, and they did play like that together. And that was the joy of it because um, with, with a lot of quality players, we've tried to see at Newcastle and we'll be mentioning some later on, they just didn't go together. It wasn't going to happen. Um, but it did. It did between them two. And they were big enough. They were confident enough. They knew they were good. They didn't. They weren't worried about who was going to be top dog. Shearer knew he was top dog, and Ferdinand wasn't uh, willing to give anything to anybody. And they knew they were clever enough. They knew to work together would benefit them, mm. them personally. And I guess as well to have someone of that quality next to you and obviously you had other players like Aspria as well to have that quality around you just drives you on to but you know that you need to be top, oh. top of your game to keep your place and we saw the best of it in that season um, of course on at the next uh, partnership and it's kind of linked because Ferdinand came in to replace one of these gents and the other guy was really important in those in that season that Sheeran and Ferdinand were so brilliant as well and we're talking about Andy Cole and Peter Beardsley, yeah, again. W- which was which was quite a phenomenal partnership. Well, I bet you uh, when you'd watch Colin Beardsley, and you, I bet you were thinking, "Goodness me, this is some partnership." I bet you thought, "I'm not sure when I'm going to see the likes of this again." Then it oh. was only a couple of seasons later. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and it it was all wrapped up in this mantra of what Kevin Keegan's about. I mean. It's it's a story I've told before, but it's worth repeating here because they they were sort of just before we we got Ferdinand arriving and doing what he did. And if you remember, Andy was a very young man who'd come from Bristol City to Newcastle, and um, Keegan famously so I mean Andy only went in to the offices on a day off to collect his post. And he was spotted by KK, who was in the car park, and he said, get in the car. And he got in the car, and the next thing he knew, he was on the way to Liverpool, and um, he said, I want you to sit and watch Les Ferdinand play centre-forward for QPR. He said, because that is the ultimate centre-forward's role. He is the best, he's the complete centre-forward, in the air, touch, goal-scoring, dropping into pockets of space, etc. And the idea of KK was that 
you'd buy Ferdinand and Ferdinand would play with Cole. That was what was intended. Incredibly, as you as you touched upon, Andy went to Manchester United quite sensationally. Ferdinand replaced Andy instead of playing alongside him and then Shearer was brought in. So getting rid of Cole, which was sensational at the time, uh, you know, it would be... That's nothing comparable to it today because Newcastle haven't got a goal scorer like that. But it was sensational. And the famous words, trust me, that Keegan said to the fans, if the only way you could replace Andy Cole is with Ferdinand Shearer and and top what Andy Cole was giving you. And that's what he did. But the partnership between Cole and Beardsley was quite phenomenal. and, And... very different to the the partnership of the other two because the partnership of the other two where they were there were two battering rams Shearer and I mean it in the nicest possible way Shearer and Ferdinand were battering rams the terror the physically terrified the opposition Andy Cole was slight he, 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 he wasn't dynamic in the air like the other two both the other two Shearer as well was top class in the air Andy Cole wasn't Beardsley was as creative as he was a finisher. He, he he could do both. He wasn't an out and out goal poacher at all. But when they were put together, I mean Andy Cole. Also, there were different personalities. Andy Cole is one of the show the the shyest guys I've ever known when he come up to Newcastle. I mean, I remember Kevin Keegan talking to me about it when he signed him. He said. You know, he said a lot of people in football at the time didn't want to touch Andy Cole. They thought he had an attitude problem. He was aloof, he was indifferent, he had an attitude problem. And that put an awful lot of people off him. uh, Because Arsenal had let him go, and he went from a top club without breaking through to Bristol Rovers, and everybody saying that. He might look good, he might be quick. And of course he was that much quicker than the other two. He might be quicker, but you've got an attitude problem with this guy. Don't take a chance. Now Keegan was never put off with that. Keegan always looked and signed a player on ability, then worried about how you might handle him when he come. But that was his great strength, Keegan, anyway, handling people, so he always felt he could do that. And the, the thing with Andy, I said, well, why... Why did he have a go? He said he was only 21. An attitude problem was still can mould him at 21. He said, and what made him decide he wanted to sign him was when he played against Newcastle. He said he was out, he pulled out wide, he was out wide. How he had come out wide to mark him and close him off, he said, and he flicked the ball around Steve Howie. He ran off the pitch and up the up the tram line and back on the pitch behind Howie to cotton onto the ball and go away. And and, and uh, KK said, "Oh, did I like that? I thought, this kid is fast. He has a go. He's clever about it." He said, "And I, I decided after seeing that, I wanted to see him play for Bristol City again." He said, "But the difficulty was the geography." It takes an eternity to get down to Bristol from Newcastle. He said, and I was sitting in this afternoon in the office and I was talking away to Terry Mack about um, Cole and how I fancied him and how he might be the answer of our problems. He said, and Douglas Hall 
the son of Sir John, old popped his head round the door and said, what's going on, boy? And he said, hey, I'm talking about this this lad Cole. He says, I think he's the answer for, for us. He said, and they're playing tonight. He said, but getting down to Bristol by car at this time of day to see him tonight, but I'd love to see him. Douglas Hall got Cameron Hall's private plane from uh, side, put the two of them in it. He says, within an hour, we're, we're down at the game, he said. And when I got there, I discovered that Andy Cole was a doubt for the game. And he said, I thought, oh, I don't believe this. We've done all this and he mightn't play. But Andy Cole asked to play and said he'd play carrying an injury. And Keegan said again, oh, I like that. He's not a chicken. He will have a go for you. He, and he said he, he was absolutely terrific. And um, he signed him. And um, he was so... People thought he was aloof, you know, but he, he was shy. He was absolutely shy. And he was put... He was never a nightclub merchant, you know, and I'm not against that because I uh, rather paid a few visits there with a few of the lads down the years but he was never going to be a, a, a big time Charlie he never wanted a, a, a flat on the key side which in those days that was the thing to do you got a flat on this uh, St Peter's Cook, Basin didn't he? sorry lived up in Durham and Cook is that right he went to Cook, Cook. Uh, he went to Cook to live and um, you know unbelievable there's never been a professional footballer out of Newcastle they wasn't born in Crook, they lived in Crook. And he chose to live in Crook and was completely not isolated. His big pal became uh, Lee Clark. Uh, Lee Clark was his big pal and they were terrific for each other. Lee Clark said he owed him an awful lot because Clarky, if you fall out with Kevin Keegan, you're in big trouble when he was manager. You remember the famous story of, of uh, Bez when he when he given a bit of this because he was left exposed by Ginola against Aston Villa at home and within quarter of an hour Keegan had him off the field uh, subbed for Robbie Elliott within the first quarter of an hour and he didn't play again for six weeks didn't get anywhere near the team and Lee Clark said at Southampton I think it was he got subbed during the game and he was so annoyed he'd come off and he kicked the bucket you know the he, he almost kicked his own bucket and was the end of his career at Newcastle. He kicked the bucket as he come off the pitch in frustration of being sent off. And KK, you know, you show some defiance. Like, oh, KK, who could get the pet lip on himself a bit, but didn't like it on anybody else. And he said, at that moment, I thought my career was through. But he said, Andy Cole, who was the big goal-scoring centre-forward at Newcastle that KK needed, had his back and supported and said he's a young lad you've got to understand I mean I remember because there was a fury on that night when this happened and the next night Gator were playing at home and all of a sudden who appears and I've, I'm morning Gator at the time who appears and says Gibbo can I hide away in the boardroom and sit and watch a game it was Lee Clark trying to keep away from everybody by getting into the Gator match but um, Coley looked after Lee Clark and he, he formed this partnership with, with Peter Beardsley. And again, what I was saying early on, you don't necessarily have to be in each other's pockets as the best friends ever for it to work. It's football knowledge. And it worked because Beardsley could set you up. 
and it worked with the other two because there were there were hammer throwers that destroyed it. It this worked because Beardsley set Cole up, and Cole scored 41 goals in in the first season we were in the top flight, and not one of them was a penalty, not one of them was direct free kick, and. Um, I reckon at least half of those goals, Beardsley himself got 24. Uh, it, this is our very first season of Premier League football. Beardsley got 24, Cole got 41, and I bet Beardsley made two-thirds of, of Cole's goals because he knew how quick Cole was, and Cole knew that if he got on his bike, Beardsley would find him. doesn't matter what the traffic's like. It doesn't matter if there's players in the way He'll curl it, he'll slip it in between two defenders, he'll nutmeg somebody, but you just make the run and Beards will find you, and that's exactly what they did. So, I mean, they hit 55 goals in that season, which have, <laughs> it's still a record, a uh, Premier League record for a partnership. But of course, I mean, before we got into Beardsley and and and, and Cole, I know they're the partnership with Toma, but it's key to remember that Beards uh, Cole came in during that the, the championship winning season, and he formed a, a, an unbelievable partnership with David Kelly, didn't he? I mean, them yes, two together did. were unbelievable. And then we saw the brutality of Keegan to, to say to Kelly, right, off you go, and then I bring Beardsley in. And it, I mean, that was a gamble in itself by Keegan, but it, it, it paid off. Yeah, uh, but it was a gamble, but it was made on sound judgment. I mean, in my humble opinion, and at the time, not in hindsight, David Kelly was Dwight Gale. He was a top, top second division or championship striker who would score a pile of goals in that division. But he wasn't a top flight striker. And Keegan knew that. And... I think we won seven against Leicester when we went up, and I think both Kelly and, and, and Cole scored that trick. But Cole, Kelly never... And if you notice Kelly's career, if you looked at all of his career, Ned's career, he never scored a pile of goals in the top division. And Keegan wasn't the only manager once they got in the top division that didn't say, God bless you, mate, off you go now. Um, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't going to work. And funny enough, Beardsley was always in this situation um, because Beardsley could play. He could play, he could finish, he could create. If, they, if God put together an all-round footballer that had everything, the ability to make goals and the ability to score goals, that was better than Peter Beardsley, he slipped him through the back door and I missed him because I didn't see anybody that was greater at doing that. And the whole point is that if you go way, way back on Beardsley, the same thing as that Keegan did with Kelly uh, in saying sorry, and then this partnership worked wonderful. When Keegan come to Newcastle as a player, in his first season, Newcastle did well, but just missed out on promotion. And the partnership that Newcastle had that season was Keegan and Ray Vivardi. Now, that was a partnership that didn't work. Uh, like I've said, all partnerships don't work. On the surface, it might well have looked as though it worked to the untutored eye because Vivardi was blisteringly quick and could score goals. But his second touch was a, a tackle. Uh, the ball ran away from him. 
uh, you know, you didn't play him defeat and, and then play off him. You played it over the top and let him open his legs, run, and, and try to finish. And at the end of that first season, Keegan went to see Arthur Cox and said, um, I'm sorry, Arthur, but if I'm going to stay on for the second season, we've got to play the way I play to get the best out of me from your point of view. And I need a centre-forward who will play defeat. He'll play me in defeat. I can play to his feet because he can play. Gavardi, you don't play to his feet because the ball bounces away from him. You play it over the top. That is not my game. That's not going to get the best out of me. Ray Verardi was absolutely decimated because he loved it at Newcastle, but he was sold. And then this little lad appears at St. James's Park from Vancouver Whitecaps. And uh, KK told me the story afterwards. He said he was sitting, he was sitting in the dressing room and um, Arthur Cox was there. And Keegan said to, to Arthur Cox, who's that little fellow over there? He says, that's your new partner he said that's the fellow I've brought in he says he's three foot six he looks about 13 year old and I've well, who's it Peter Bears never heard of him he said I haven't heard of him because he's been at Vancouver Whitecaps he said but I'll tell you what you're not off going to be grateful you take my word for it you're going to be grateful I got him he's and KK said after two or three training sessions I thought aye he'll do for me he'll uh, do for me and I guess that shows the strength of how good that partnership was that he brought him back towards oh, the end of his career. Was, was built was built on that. Uh, and Beardsley was built on that. Beardsley absolutely adored Keegan. He worshipped him almost. I mean, it was Keegan who called him Pedro because he had this little, like, Spanish ability. Um, and he became... Uh, Keegan became his mentor when they were playing together. Uh, it was an intriguing forward line because I hadn't seen a forward line like it at Newcastle because it was, it was Keegan, Waddle and Beardsley <coughs> and it was built on what Keegan wanted. All three could play. All three were comfortable on the ball. All three got, got a load of England caps in their career but there wasn't an out-and-out centre-forward in that three. They, they, they just inter, interlocked, they, they, they swapped positions, it was difficult therefore to mark them, um, <coughs> but there wasn't a centre-forward. I mean, when we had Ferdinand and, and Shearer, we had two centre-forwards. That side virtually had no centre-forwards, but it worked brilliant, and Beardsley adored KK, looked up to him, his work ethic and training. I mean, this was a super, superstar, England skipper, a, a, played for Hamburg in one European player of the year, won the European Cup with Liverpool. Keegan thought, this is wonderful. And he thought, and, and Keegan thought, this little fella, he can off play. And and that's why he went back and got him, of course, for uh, when he was manager for the entertainers. Now, we both agree that Peter Beardsley is the best Newcastle United player we've seen yeah. in the flesh. Yes, yes. In terms of with Andy Cole, was it a case that Peter Beardsley was just that good that if anybody was on the end of the pass, they would score goals? Or did they have something together which just clicked? No, it, it, that would be uh, to downgrade Andy Cole. Um, no, you can't. If I was Andy Cole, the best partner I would want would would be Beardsley. And I, if I was Beardsley, I would want to send a forward with pace that, that 
I could hate every time, and that's Andy Cole. Um, no, uh, Andy Cole was special. He was a natural, natural goal scorer. And it wasn't a matter of Beardsley just happened to make him. It was very good that he was a very lucky man in some ways that he played for Kevin Keegan and Alex Ferguson because both were forward thinkers. And in terms of forward, I mean getting forward. And the partnership, Cole went on to another magnificent partnership, which was more the obvious, the two twin strikers at Manchester United with Dwight York. But Cole had massive ability as a finisher and the funny thing is with Andy you know he, he always he had a bit of a thing all his career deep down inside of him that um, Alan Shearer cost him a load of England caps because uh, and and some of the time he believed and wrongly in my opinion that he cost that Shearer got picked because he was England skipper um, and he, and you weren't going to... Now, I couldn't see them two together, like I saw Ferdinand and, and Shiva. I couldn't see them two together. And, and Cole got very few. And he deserved a lot more England caps on his ability. But then again, who's going to drop Shiva? Behave yourself. That was never going to happen. Out of those two partnerships then, Shiva and Ferdinand, Cole and Beardsley, which one was better in your opinion? Both were wonderfully successful. There's absolutely no question about that. But I would go for Shearer and Ferdinand because I could still fix Beardsley into that side because Beardsley could play anywhere bar goal. And he once actually played in goal for Newcastle at West Ham when, when the goalkeeper got carried off. So I suppose he could play in, that, in goal as well. But, I mean, you could, you could play... Uh, and of course he was there at that time you could play them two centre forward and still have Beardsley in the side whereas if you played the other two it's straightforward. no I, w I would definitely have Shearer and Ferdinand but I would also have uh, Beardsley in that side because I'm a greedy boy <laughs> um, we're going to go on to Malcolm McDonald and John Tudor in just a moment just a quick reminder to please like and subscribe to the podcast whether you're listening through the Apple or the Spotify or wherever, um, you know, into your headphones. Or if you're watching on YouTube, please remember to subscribe to the channel as well um, and pass it on to your Newcastle United supporting friends and family. As I said, on to Supermac and Shooter then, 1971 to 76. Now, if my maths is correct, they grabbed 146 goals between them in that time in those five seasons. Uh, Tudor arrived uh, a few months after Supermac did. And very, very different players, John. Yeah. But they just worked so well together. Very, very different players. Um, again, Supermac has gone on record, um, as I was talking about Shearer with Ferdinand, Supermac has gone on record saying his best partner was John Tudor. Now, he had another wonderful partnership when he went to Arsenal with a very young striker called Frank Stapleton, who became a superstar and played for Manchester United, the Republic of Ireland. Um, and Supermac actually went to the Arsenal manager and said, because John Radford was in the side then, Raddy was near the end of his career, said, look, this partnership isn't going to work. And Raddy said the same thing to the manager. Our styles don't complement each other. So, you know, just being two great players doesn't mean it's going to work. And he said, let Raddy go. He wants to play regular football and this kid Stapleton when he gets a rough edge is knocked off and it's going to be terrific 
but Super Mac will say to this day that the best guy that he ever played with, and he played with one or two other people with England, but was John Tudor. What followed John Tudor, he played in the 74 Cup Final with Supermark, and by the 76 League Cup Final, it was Alan Gowling that was in partnership with Supermark. Alan Gowling and Supermark never really got on um, with each other. Uh, mainly, I felt, because I, Supermark's my mate and was by a million miles the better striker of the two. But I felt sorry for Gowlin because Gordon Lee did him no favours because Gordon Lee wanted to put a downer on Supermac. So he always talked about his great number nine. And he was actually talking about Alan Gowlin. But he said the great number nine in press conferences on away trips time and time again. And everybody thought he was talking about Supermac. Till 30 seconds later, they realised that it couldn't be Supermac because of something else he said. So he almost put Gowling, forced Gowling to be into competition with Supermac. And they didn't dovetail uh, as well. There's no question about that. Gowling was very gangling and um, workhorse, but he was one of the in crowd with Gordon Lee, and um, Supermac was one of the out crowd. But John Tudor, it would be very wrong and very amiss to say he was the labourer to the artists in the partnership between Tudor and Supermark. That would be an insult. But he accepted that he was in the shadow, literally, of the guy alongside him. And, I mean, ironically, I was involved in helping in writing the, the, the foreword for John Tudor's book, which was called King for Day, uh, King John the Tudor king of Newcastle, etc., etc., And that's what John always felt that he was, that when he was at Newcastle, he was king for a day, when he was living there uh, alongside Supermac. And um, certainly together, I had an awful lot of time for the pair of them. You mentioned there, kind of in the shadow of Supermac, but you need a player like that sometimes, don't you? When you've got a character yep. like Supermac, who's got an ego, he knows how good he is, he doesn't need to be told... Sometimes you need that player to work in the background. And I I mean, I'm going to compare it here to kind of Isaac Hayden and Alan St. Maximum. I feel Hayden does the dirty work, which allows St. Maximum to, to do what he needs to do and do the flashy bits. And in, in many ways, you know, you can kind of see that in some ways with Tudor and, and Supermark, where Tudor just did the bits that allowed Supermark to really, you know, hit the heights. And yet Tudor, he knew where the goal was just as well as Supermark did. Oh, he, he was a very, very good finisher. The, the thing that they quickly worked out between the two of them was how to operate and pay. Supermark would always go at the near post. Tudor would always go at the back post. It always startles Supermark to these days that strikers don't do that. Like defences don't put two fullbacks on the line these days on corners etc why how many goals do you save from corners that are headed in just inside one of the posts in in supermax day craig o'clock would have been standing there and the ball would have just been knocked out is it old-fashioned i'm sorry there's either good ideas or bad ideas there's not old-fashioned ideas and new fashioned ideas if it's a good idea it's a good idea and it always baff when I'm sitting with Supermac now watching a game, it almost baffles them how you don't get one striker going near post and one striker going back post because, and therefore, the real secret of their success was Stuart Barraclough, who played as a winger 
outside light and was as quick as a whippet. And he just drew, he didn't put uh, ice on the ball. He, he didn't lob it into the area. He drove it into the area. And he drove it either near post or back post. And both, MacDonald was good near Tudor was, that was the best part of his game. And one of them, they weren't standing there. They made the run. Barraclough knew if he put the ball into the near post, Super Mac would be on it, and the back post, Tudor would be on it. Well, that was going to be my next question, because if you were someone like Barraclough or you were someone like Terry Hibbert, to have the knowledge that you put that ball in the box and someone is going to mean it, like, a bit Absolutely. like Ginola and Shio, and I know Shio had to pin Ginola up against the wall and say, put the ball of in course. the bloody box. But, you know, if, when you know there's someone in there that's going to get on the end of it, and we've seen it in recent times, it's a massive frustration, especially now. I mean, Callum Wilson... We know that you give him give the ball, he's probably going to net, net it. But with Joe Linton, for instance, the amount of times the ball goes in the box and he's not even in it. But he's I not even think, in the box. No. So when you have someone like Tudor and Supermark for Hibbert, for Bartlett, it must have been an absolute dream. Oh, uh, and, and that's what I was saying, talking about partnerships with Beardsley and Cole. I mean, Cole knew if he went on the move, Beardsley would find him. Yeah. And Beards, you knew Cole would go on the move. You could quite easily have someone like it. You could quite easily have a Hibbert Supermark partnership because, as much as Supermark oh. talks about Tudor being superb, he also goes on record and you could sit with him for hours talking about how good Terry Hibbert was. It's uh, of, of course, of course. Uh, these were strikers that worked in yeah. tandem as a twosome, but you, you do need the midfielder that's capable of doing that. And and that's something that, uh, that Hibbert could do. But, you know, a winger. You rely on each other. This is what partnerships are all about. If Barraclough zipped the ball in the near post or the back post and your striker didn't make a run, that would look like a bad, bad ball and the fans would say, what's going But you don't want them standing on the post because you're not going to get... You need them to be moving. But when he whipped it into that space, he knew they would be on the hoof and they would get there. So... Tell our listeners then about how Tudor ended up at Newcastle. We said there that Supermac arrived in the summer, Tudor, uh, a few months later. Was it a case that Joe Harvey had looked at it and thought, well, what we need to take the burden a bit off Supermac? Or I mean, how did that deal come out? Because like we mentioned the ego of Supermac. He thinks he can score, you know, oh. 100 goals a game. So why did they have to bring in someone like Tudor? I, I think, uh, really... Um it was decided in um, Harvey's mind the other way around. He was going to get Tudor uh, as an honest centre forward. They had done played at Coventry and Sheffield United and give you blood and sweat, and that's a great start. Um, and then along came Superman, and um, I'm pretty certain it was the other way around. The Tudor came first. Oh, maybe my research was... Maybe. My feeling is that Tudor come first and Tudor was struggling and then on his own in. and Supermac come along and the partnership blossomed and uh, it was a grateful Tudor that, uh, that found a partner was there with him that could play. I'm yeah. sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, like you just have there. Um, in terms of... Um, Kind of the goal scoring ability there. I mean, what what was Tudor's biggest asset? Work work rate, his ability in the air, 
in his ability not to be a prima donna. If there was mucky work to be done, and there always is, he'll do it. He used to call, and forgive the expression, he used to call Supermac golden bollocks because he was... He was the Errol Flynn. He he was the Johnny Depp that was going to do all the swashbuckling, score the outrageous goal, and take all the headlines. But John is going to have helped to set it up, and John was happy to do that. He always told us a tale that early on when they played together, we played when we went to the cup final. We played Scunthorpe in the cup, and we always drew with these horrible sides like Scunthorpe and Hendon and all these people up here and then won away. So we played up here, we were held 1-1 and we're going down to Scunthorpe for the replay. John said he was in the players' lounge after the first game at St James's Park and John Roberts, who's a big Welsh lad who was the centre-half of Scunthorpe, says to Tudor, you know, chatting together, says to Tudor, by the way, this golden guy that's your centre forward your number nine legend or something he's just a bandy leg guy with a bad first touch he says nothing special nothing special he says we'll do it down there and John said well aye let's wait and see we'll have it, we'll see what happens down there he said in, down there I saw him before the game and I said um, we'll see what happens today John he said and then Supermax doing nothing in the game, there's nothing happening. It's not necessarily, he's, he hasn't made an impression, he said. And then this ball was pinged up to McDonald, who was 30 yards out from goal. It's pinged up to him very high, about chest high. He said he tried to bring it down with one foot, and the touch wasn't great because the ball was chest high. And the ball actually shot over Supermax's shoulder off his boot. He said, within a split second, Supermax swiveled, hit it with the other foot from 30 yards and it flew in the top corner. We went on to win 3-0. Supermax scored another one. He said, and after the game, I made a point of going up to Roberts and saying, um, do you think th- th- this golden boy's got nothing going from now, John? Uh, and Roberts sort of said, <laughs> and off he went. And he said, that was the ability. And, and people always said if they wanted a downer was Supermac, well, perhaps his touch isn't the greatest or perhaps his work rate isn't the greatest. But he then always delivered uh, and delivered in the most spectacular way. He said, and, you know, you, you've got to remember, he said, I got to know Supermac in training, he said, and he was never a long-distance runner. You know, on cross-country pre-season, Supermac beat the back. Yeah, didn't like it. He said, but on a sprint over 100 yards, dynamite. He said, he just, he said, I would be leading after 5 or 10 or 15 yards out the blocks. He said, and then all of a sudden, this fella would just go past me, like you're saying, bold. And it was Supermac. And um, that quick ability and they went up to St. I think it was St. Johnson in a pre-season game and, and having a bit of fun in Supermac and John are just standing ready to kick off. And in those days, goalkeepers used to mark the centre of the goal with their foot, their studs, put a mark in the penalty area so that they, they could play their angles off 
off the mark, which was the centre of the goal. He said in in John in, in supermarket standing and their goalkeeper is is marking the pitch beyond the penalty spot, putting the mark for centre of the goal. And John said, I'll just knock the ball to you. Have a dip at the keeper. So the kickoff, he slotted the ball five yards, Supermark chipped it over the goalkeeper. The goal was down to nine point something seconds and um, being the big time Charlie, of course, Supermark went over to Joe Harvey with one hand in the end and said, can I come off now, boss? Because <laughs> I've, I've scored my goal and it was John that did that. They become good friends. They lived together in Morpeth in the same housing estate in Morpeth. And it was true that when, when Supermark had that sensational home debut and scored three against the great Liverpool side that went on to win the European Cup with Keegan and Clements. Now, you know, he come off concussed when Clements done him so he wouldn't get a fourth goal, carried off on a stretcher. And, of course, it was, it was Tudor that had to drive him home that night because he couldn't drive himself home to Morpeth because of, uh, he's, he was suffering from concussion. But John has said, and Clark said the same thing, uh, Frank Clark, he said, you know, when you first saw Supermac, he infuriated you because he was very one-dimensional. He did his own thing. He wouldn't change for anybody. He wouldn't chase a paper bag. If, if it wasn't going to work, he wouldn't chase it. But he said, later in your career, when you go to other clubs, like um, Clark, he went to Nottingham Forest and, and uh, I think it was Stoke for, uh, for John Tudor. And then you retire and you look back, he said, my God, you all appreciate what Supermac brought to the table. And um, John Tudor was made for Supermac. Uh, there's absolutely no question. And he was more, more, more than happy to play the role. Yeah, well, that goal against St. Johnson remains the quickest ever goal yeah. scored in Newcastle's history. Um, and you were right. Uh, Tudor did come before McDonald's, oh, so I was did. just keeping you on your toes. You were, you were, you but luckily I saw that. I got me months mixed round. <laughs> but um, yes. we're on to the next partnership then. And, well, we're going to mention Wynn Davies and Pop Robson, yeah. who were obviously instrumental in that um, Fairs Cup side. Both, yeah. again, very, very different players. But, again, they just clicked. And there was it's just a, one of those partnerships which I think many of yeah. the younger listeners, myself included, would have loved to have seen in oh, the flesh. Uh, it worked wonderfully. And in no way were they personal friends. I don't mean they were enemies, but Wynn was sort of withdrawn... Wynn was a, a great friend of Tommy Gibbs, and I think that was about the size of it at the time. Uh, uh, they've all mellowed and become older and get on wonderfully well now, but Wynn was very much a loner. Pop was a wonderful finisher. How on earth Pop didn't get an England cap when he, when he played for Newcastle High for Sunderland and for West Ham, especially when he was when in you, the West Ham When you look team. at that record he's got for all the clubs, it's oh, amazing. In the top flight, from being a kid at Newcastle, Played for West Ham, which is the football academy that Greenwood and everybody come out of, and, and, and played with, you know, with the Brookings and Moore. How on earth he didn't end up an England player, I will never understand. He scored spectacular goals. Big win was very much in the air. Big win took all the physical hammering to open the doors for somebody like Pop to be the great finisher. 
um, and that was the basis of our European FAZE Cup winning side. Although I always found it staggering because all our goals uh, in the early rounds there came to those two, Win Davies and Pop Robson. Yet in the two-leg semi-final against Glasgow Rangers and the two-leg final against Uspes Doza, when against Uspes Doza we scored six goals over the two, neither of them scored in those two games, which is quite staggering really. For But Win Davies give so much more than goals. Pop Robson gave goals and they were just wonderful. There, there was other partnerships, Peter With with Alan Shoulder, which wasn't in the top right, but was quite a wonderful partnership and a very unusual one, very much a little and large partnership. Big centre forward, Peter With, little guy, Alan Shoulder. Couldn't half head the ball. Oh, with, excellent. But I mean, with he late in his career, becoming England international, won the European Cup, etc., uh, etc. Played with Forrest, played with Villa. Terrific centre forward. And little Alan Shoulder played for Bly Spartans and was a minor, was down the pits. And Newcastle picked him up and he, and he played for Newcastle and he never quite had a partnership again that was anywhere near with and Shoulder. I, that was the partnership. I do love that partnership because there's two, two stories there. Either one would make a great little tale, you know. Yes, with, absolutely. With having to drop down. Into the, into the you know what was what the, the second division at that point scoring all them goals then getting the move to I think it was back to was it up to Villa you went to and won the European yeah, Cup yeah and then yeah. you got shoulder obviously like you say from Blythe and um and, and you know impressing and then getting the move to Newcastle you know but you've got two tails there in kind of one well, season it's which incredible is isn't it because one was such a big time uh, Peter with and the other I mean, how often these days would you get a bloke playing in non-league football in the northeast who's a minor? Well, you couldn't get one these days because there isn't any pits. But it was a minor and was down the pits. And the next thing, he's playing in Newcastle United's first team. And there was no sort of betting in. It wasn't two or three seasons later that he, you know, he played famously in that blind side that got to the fifth round of the cup. Uh, Lovely little lad, Alan, and I got. In, I mean, I knew Withy well because he was the big time Charlie in the side. But little Alan Shoulder become one of my coaches at Gateshead later on in his life, and uh, remained the down to earth lad that he always was. But was very underrated. Had good ability. Knew where the goal was. The height of his career, unquestionably, was being at Newcastle with Peter With. That was the height of his career. The other partnership I wanted to talk about a little bit more, because it was slightly different, was McQuinn and Mark McGee at Newcastle. Um, and that was an unusual partnership. I mean, Quinny become a very good mate of mine, you see. I mean, uh, hysterically, he could have been a, a comedian on, on, on stage. Uh, I mean, I used to go clubbing with him and... Uh, I think he was probably the only fellow who went clubbing more than I did. And he did. I did a lot of talk-ins with him. And in those days, we did talk-ins, which were combined talk-ins. I would have a Newcastle player and a Sunderland player and go on stage in clubs that were sort of... I mean, they would cause riots these days, probably. Um, the, both clubs in on one show. And Quinney was nine times out of ten the, the Newcastle United man there. I mean, he had more patter in the fortnight's reign with um, Quinney, uh, especially in the nightclubs, uh, and he would bet on a couple of flies crawling up a window. Yeah, I mean, he he lived 
For the horses, and of course, as you probably know, he made a living out of that when he finished football by becoming a, a trainer. Um, trainer of horses, by the way. He was never a trainer when he was a footballer because <laughs> he didn't like training. He just liked playing. Um, but And I mean, one of his big mates in Newcastle was a, a, that I used to knock about with, with him was a little lad who was really the horses was his game and he, he was nicknamed World Cup Willie because that used to be the the, the the thing when the World Cup was on then but he was um, Quinny roly-poly uh, he could have been in the roly-polies you know that group the, the, <laughs> the lady group he could have easily been in roly-poly never looked the fittest but half knew where the goal was and um, scored a pile of goals and was a complete and utter extrovert um, didn't hide his light under a bushel at all what you got was it was well, a custard pie in the face. You get it now, don't you? When he talks about Newcastle, when he speaks to him, he yes. just doesn't hold back, which is really refreshing. Mm. That season that he played with McGee, fifty-one goals in ninety-one games that season. So that's the season that Sunderland unfortunately beat Newcastle in the playoff semi-finals. Fifty-one goals is is a remarkable amount. Sixty-one, I think. Sixty-one is my maths wrong as well. Well, right. I'm blaming Wikipedia. We'll go with sixty-one because it sounds better. He did. He, they scored sixty-one. Sixty-one goals. Sixty-one. But can you imagine scoring that amount of goals and not going up? And of course, what killed us was the way we didn't go up because we qualified after the teams that went up automatically. We were the highest team going into the playoffs, and the lowest team going into the playoffs was Sunderland, and we lost to Sunderland now we went down there in the first game and, and got a no no draw when uh, Burridge saved a penalty and then we come up here when we lost 2-0 to the G-men Gabbiadini and um, and Gates and of course when I was talking to you about those talkings Andrew when I had one Newcastle and one Sunderland and Quinny was Newcastle well often the Sunderland one was <laughs> Gabbers because I knew Gabbers ever so well and he was a top top lad he was a tough, tough person. And he was often the fellow that was on stage with us. And he chucked us up well and truly. My, didn't he let me know about it? Like, um, But, I mean, it was a crippling, crippling result. Uh, and knocked the heart out of Newcastle, knocked the heart out of Quinny. But McGee had joined us for a second spell. He, he, he was uh, 32 years old. He, he had a terrific career as a player, you know. I mean, he'd played for Alex Ferguson at Aberdeen in a very good Aberdeen team. He played for Glas Glasgow Celtic. He won three Scottish Championships, five Scottish Cups, four Scotland Caps, and he played for Hamburg, uh, Kevin Keegan's old side. He could play, could mock. He was a top, top player. Mind, the first time we got him, the player that was signed with him, Mike Larnett, bless him, who was a, a centre forward? If ever we did, uh, Newcastle United's worst eleven that I've ever seen, Larnick would be the centre forward. I think we've mentioned him previously, oh, haven't I, we? I mean, he, he never scored a first-team goal. I saw him score one goal um, for Newcastle, and it was the reserves. And he, the ball was played into him eight yards from goal, outside the six-yard box, eight yards from goal. He was running in on goal. He tried to control it. It kept bouncing round his knees, 
and eventually collapsed it, the netting at the back of the goal, still trying to control the ball. The both the ball and him had run into the goal together, so it was a goal. And that was, the, and considering the history of Newcastle with number nines, that day I thought, Mike, I don't think you're going to get in the top six here. I don't think there's much <laughs> chance of that. McGee was quality. He, I'm not trying to compare him in any way to Beardsley, but then. Um, he could make them as well as, as score them. That was that the attribute you think was that? Yes, yeah. He was. He, that, that, I, I, w I wouldn't want to call him a poor man's Peter Beardsley because yeah. that would be an insult. But nobody's better than Peter Beardsley at that. But he was that type of striker. He wasn't an out and outer. So therefore, he was going to go well with Quinny, who was just an out and out finisher. Quinny doesn't want to know the ball on the halfway line or m midway inside there off. He wants the ball in the box and he'll come in and finish. And um, I mean, they both lived in, like I said, and this doesn't help, but maybe it does. Uh, that um, Tudor and McDonald both lived in Morpeth and McGee and Quinney both lived in Hexham, which meant they went home together, etc., etc. They drank in the local pub, the Golden Heart, together. Um, and the partnership was quite special and it ought to have taken us up that season because we were the third best team without a shadow of doubt in the second division that season. Had McGee always played like that or had when you watch him, obviously you mentioned that he was 32 when he arrived, mm. did you see him adapting some of his games to what had gone previously? And I think he was, I mean I saw him when he came here as a young boy and he found it a, with Larnick and he found it a bit of a struggle but you could tell there's ability there. You know, when he wasn't a player like uh, Sam Maximum, but, you know, you watch Sam Maximum, you think, how much better is he going to get? His game needs rounding. There's things that's wrong with it. He doesn't score enough goals, but you don't say he's got no ability. You yeah. know he's got ability. And you could see the ability there with McGee. You don't, if you're Scottish and you've played, I mean, the Aberdeen team with Ferguson was superb. You don't go on and play for Glasgow Celtic and win all those championships and go and play for Hamburg in Scotland if you come in, in Germany, in, if you can't play. Yeah. Um, and it was obvious that he could play. And he was at home making them as well as taking them. Therefore, he's the perfect foil for somebody like Quinney, who's not going to go around making goals for anybody. He's going to go around taking them. You know, he, Quinney was a bit like Mirandina. You know, Mimundina, one touch and a shot. And that was Quinny, one touch and a shot. Quinny ain't going to lay it off. So Quinny ain't going to do too many of the things Shearer did for, for Ferdinand in the Man U 5-0 game. Uh, Quinny was a finisher and a very good finisher. Um, but again, you know, the, there's a ruthless side to everything, to every successful football manager. And you talked about Keegan being uh, ruthless with... Um, Ned Kelly and as a player with Ray Verardi, Quinney fell short of what uh, Keegan wanted. And when Keegan became manager, Quinney was still here, but it wasn't never going to work because Quinney was a guy that was an out-and-out finisher in the box. Not a great touch like Verardi, knew where the goal was, but Keegan demanded more than that. And of course, if you were a big time Charlie, they went with that. And and, and I always remember Quinny telling us when when he got Keegan, he thought this is brilliant. This was his hero. 
because he, he was from Liverpool, Quinny, and, and Keegan's career was built at, at Liverpool. So he thought, this is wonderful. This bloke is my hero. He did this for Liverpool. He loves the horses, and I love the horses. Am I going to have a great time in Newcastle? It actually was the exact opposite. It marked the end of Quinny's career at Newcastle. Um, and they were going to rub each other up the wrong way because once it was obvious that, that KK wasn't an advocate of, of Quinny, Quinny will then bite back because Quinny, that is Quinny. On to then some kind of honorary mentions. We're going to yeah. move away from the strike partnerships. I mean, out of the names that we have just mentioned there, actually, John, I know I asked you kind of at the beginning there, Shearer and Ferdinand Cole and Beardsley, but out of the, we'll, we'll group everyone in there together. Mm. So Shearer, Ferdinand Cole, Beardsley, Supermark, Tudor, Davies, uh, Pop Robson, with Shoulder, uh, Quinn and McGee. Put them in order. We'll start from the bottom and put them in order. Great, great question. Uh, well, let's start from the top because that's easier. <laughs> I would put Ferdinand and Shearer first yeah uh, I would then have to go Super Mac Tudor Andy Cole Beardsley uh, Win Davies Pop Quinn McGee Peter With Shoulder there we have it and if you disagree with Gibbo's choice you can email in at the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com or you can also find us over on Twitter. Of course, we've got the Chronicle NUFC tag as well on Twitter. So if you have any comments about this podcast, drop it um, into the comments after the tweet that you'll see it and we'll, we'll endeavor to get back to you. So we're going to move on to the partnerships away from the strike forces. And I suppose this is open to many kind of interpretations. You could have, for instance, Keegan and McDermott you know the the kind of the, the management partnership but we're going to stick with playing partnerships for now and we're going to start with uh, Frank Clark and Davy Craig full backs part of that first cut winning side you know instrumental um in the side of Joe Harvey close to 500 appearances for Newcastle United so that says a lot um why are these in the list John because they're the best two full backs playing at the same time as each other that Newcastle United have ever had. I mean, Craig, the right back, David Craig, 406 games plus another six as sub in 18 years, 18 years of service. Clark, 456 games, one as sub in 13 years. And they were around during all the success Newcastle had under Joe Harvey. They were the first and always went in tandem virtually they, they established themselves in the 65 side the f that's the first side Keegan uh, the first side Harvey uh, built which was the side that went up and was promoted there were two young kids they were hugely at the height of the game when we won the first cup in 1969 and they were instrumental to the side when we played twice at Wembley in 74 to 76, albeit David Craig missed both finals because of hamstrings, which was a bane of his life. And But for that, his appearance numbers would have been astronomical. Um, but there were still top stars then. So in three sides that, that was built by Harvey, these two boys figured in both the sides. And um, you've got to remember uh, that even the smaller things are won. 
the Texaco Cup two times, which was like the Anglo-Scottish Cup. And when we won the Anglo-Italian Cup, which took some doing because we were playing one-off games, not two legs, like uh, in the first cup, um, against top sides. And we went over to Florence in the final to play Fiorentina. We couldn't play Supermac because he was away with England on a tour uh, because it was an end-of-season tour. So we went over there to 45,000 mad Italians in the crowd playing Fiorentina, who were a top, top Serie A side at the time, without, without our number Australia. nine legend. And the winning goal was scored by David Craig. Um, so, you know, there was, there was a lot to be said. They were contrasting in styles. I mean, David Craig was silky smooth, comfortable on the ball, lovely passer of the ball. Clarky was more the nobly need Jack John type. Uh, he was the best defender in the club by a million miles, out and out defending. Uh, but he would have a nosebleed if he got anywhere near the halfway line, never mind crossing it. Um, so there were very, very different type of players, uh, both initially very shy. And very they both joined. I mean, when you think, they both played over 400 games apiece and cost Newcastle out. David Craig came as a schoolboy from Northern Ireland and Frank Clark was an amateur with Crook Town when he signed for Newcastle. They both came without any financial outlay, played just under 500 games apiece. What a return Newcastle got for the money uh, with those two lads. And, I mean, they were quite incredible. I mean, Craigie was so quiet. He come from Cumber, just outside of Belfast. He was so quiet. He'd gone to Scunthorpe on a trial and was so homesick that, that he went back home. Um, then he come to Newcastle on trial and, and, and somehow he said the jolly people just fit in. He, he, he just felt comfortable with jolly people. And of course, a significant thing, we had a few Irishmen in the team at that time. And Dick Keith, who was a left back and was a legend in Northern Ireland, where he was an international, Dick Keith took him under his wing and coaxed the best out of a young talent who could have easily been submerged because he wouldn't say boo to a goose, David. Um, and I mean, talking to Joe a lot of years later, he said, in his career, David never caused me one problem the whole time he was here. And I, he was the first name I put on the team sheet. Uh, and that's how good he was. Clarky was a contrast, not so much as a person initially. Clarky was very shy initially, but Wolf knew that he became a talker and a thinker. He blossomed into that, both at, at, at Newcastle and later on with Nottingham Forest. I mean, he was so much of a talker and a thinker that you always had a feeling that he would become a manager. You never had a feeling David Craig even would want to become a manager or a coach. Uh, end of his playing career was going to be the end of his time in football. You could always see Clarky going on, as he did. Um, but it was fun. I used to like watching players and trying to decide if they could become managers, in my opinion, on what they've shown. And sometimes it stood out like a sore thumb, and other times you got it totally wrong. I mean, I always saw Bob Monker would become a manager, which he did. Um, I always thought 
that uh, Frank Clark would become a manager, which he did. I always thought John Tudor would become a manager, which he didn't. And I always thought Supermac would never be a manager because he had more fun than Blackpool. And he become a very successful one at Fulham, so you never knew. But, I mean, when you look at Clarkie, after finishing playing, he managed Nottingham Forest, following on from Clarkie. He managed Manchester City. He was one of the top men at the PFA, one of the bosses of the PFA, and he went on to be chairman of Nottingham Forest as well. I mean, that was a huge career after his, his playing career, which shows what he, what he had gone from. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is, having had this great career, and we all know what happened to him when he signed for Nottingham Forest with Cluffy, your first division championship, European Cup. But Clark, he always told me, you know, years later, he said, Gibbo, you know what? I've been blessed. I've had a, a career. I've won a European trophy with Newcastle United. I've won the ultimate European trophy with Forest. I've won the first division championship. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et he said, but you know the biggest buzz I've ever had in my whole life was not playing in the European Cup final, not playing in the European First Cup final, but was playing in front of a couple of hundred people in the local pub in the group, in a group playing music. The buzz. He was a guitarist. He played in the week we were down for the FA Cup final Monday to Friday. He entertained us singing Peggy Sue on his guitar. His greatest buzz is, is as a musician and his love of music. And at the age he's at now, in his 70s, I would guess, he's entering, he's got a group together in the play local, and until the lockdown, they play locally, just for the fun of it. Uh, you know, uh, that was the greatest buzz he said he's ever had. But, um, and as a, the wonderful thing was these guys went on and played all these games, these two, Craig and Clark, together. And uh, they had quality people pushing behind them. I mean, David Craig had Irving Natwis, who, for me, was another Rolls-Royce of a player, going for his right-back position. And Frank Clark had Alan Kennedy, who went on to win everything with Liverpool, pushing for his left-back position. So, you know, to hold off that sort of quality for as long as they did shows how good they were. Well, it's funny. Um, I'm d I've got a piece together on how to be a successful fullback in Newcastle. And I spoke to Frank last month. I spoke to Irvin Natwis, and um, very complimentary about each other. And, you know, you're right. You know, Irvin Natwis as well had it. Hundreds oh. of appearances for Newcastle into wonderful silky silky player. So um, look out for that one. But yeah, Clark's in, uh, in good fettle. He's uh, yeah, he was um, good crack. So it was a pleasure to speak to him. Um, we've got a few other names on this list. Who do you want to go with next? Well, you know, uh, let's look at midfield because they are the creators. And as Supermac often said, you know, without Terry Ibbett. If somebody doesn't fashion the if somebody fashions the bullets, I'm I can fire them. Yeah. But if the bullets don't come, I've got. And of course, we all know that because the bullets didn't come in the '74 Cup final, which is why McDonald and Tudor were like two milk bottles standing on somebody's step. Uh, Barraclough wasn't picked in the side. They, it didn't work for the midfielders who were. Etc. Etc. And so you've got to have people to fashion the bullets, and we've had a load of terrific midfielders. We could do a program 
on that and nothing else. So I'm just going to pick a couple of examples because they were fun to me. Because partnerships, to be successful, you don't have to be friends, uh, which I've said many times, and it can be controversial. And and the two partnerships I was wanting to to be perfect examples of that were Stan Anderson and Jim Eiley in Newcastle, who could who won the second division championship '65. Joe Harvey's first big team that he built. Stan Anderson and Jim Eiley couldn't stand each other. Could not stand each other. And then you fast forward to Kieran Dyer and Lee Bowyer, and they famously fought each other. They boxed each other on the pitch like a couple of mad hairs at St James's Park. Remember that? Um, so <laughs> there's partnerships where you would look upon them and say, blink the neck, how did that work? Um, and Stan Anderson and Jim Eiley would, would come first because quite simply they did do that. Um, for a start, they were they were a bit like Shearer and Ferdinand. Everybody said they couldn't go together. And the reason they couldn't go together was both of them were attacking midfielders. Both of them wanted to get forward, wanted to be creative. They couldn't tackle a fish supper. Uh, I don't think I ever saw them win a ball. And normally you would have one attacker and a, and a setter there in midfield for it to work. These two just wanted to bomb on, bomb on, and bomb on. And they were very different people. And um, what really made it from day one be unable to be friends was that Jim Eiley was the kingpin at Newcastle at the time. He was the silky midfielder who had played for Sheffield United, played Spurs, looked a quality, quality player, was captain of Newcastle United. Then suddenly Joe Harvey goes out and buys the Stan Anderson, who's an absolute, and still is to this day, living legend of Sunderland. And you think, you're going to bring in the living legend of Sunderland to play for Newcastle United? Are you a full shilling? This can never work. And it works an absolute treat. He had played pile of games, hundreds and hundreds of games for Sunderland, won a couple of caps for Sunderland, absolute legend, comes here. And not only does he come here with all the controversy of coming from Sunderland, where he wasn't just an ordinary player, he's one of their all-time legends, to come into Newcastle, but Joe Harvey immediately takes a captaincy off Jim Eiley and gives it to Stan Anderson. Well, of course, Jim Eiley was tripping over his pet lip. Uh, I mean, you know, he felt so badly done to. Uh, it was untrue. And it did look as if they weren't going to be able to play together. Um, and it became obvious from very early on that they disliked each other. In some, And I know why Jim Eiley disliked Stan, because he got his nose put out of joint. But Stan, him... Uh, I think one of the things as well was that Stan very, very quickly become hugely popular in the dressing room and had a major, major influence. Uh, Joe Harvey was always willing to consider what Stan felt and thought Newcastle should do. Um, 
it doesn't mean he didn't listen to Jim, but the biggest influence was Stan. The young players at Newcastle, like Pop Robson um, and Craig Clark, all the all the young lads, young monker, they all loved Stan Anderson, looked up to Stan Anderson, um, and hung on every word. Uh, so there was going to be a little bit of irritant there. What in between these, luckily, because it was a half-back line you called in those days, and the whole team was built round Anderson, McGrath and Eiley, uh, and McGrath was the centre-half, uh, and Big John was um, absolute comic. He, he made a fortune on after dinner speaking once he stopped playing because he was so funny as well as having a million stories to tell. And he was the sort of man in the middle. And I think if anybody wanted to mention, Stan would say to him, Stan would say, hey, John, tell that fella next to you, A, B, and C. And, and Jim would say, hey, 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 John, big man, tell him over there. And there was John in the middle. And John had this reputation of being a hard, hard, hard centre-half. In fact, when he was at Newcastle, that was a myth. He was a ball-playing centre-half at Newcastle. He'd become this hard, he could look after himself, but he'd become the out-and-out hard man when he went to Southampton after he was at Newcastle. But um, what, what, why it worked for Newcastle is that somehow th these two managed to come to a compromise. When one went on the ball, the other would drop in to cover. And when he went, he would drop in. They were quality footballers. They both, maybe it's prima donnas to a certain extent, both wanted to play the way they wanted to play, but were clever enough to say, if he goes, it's no good me going as well because we're going to lose. I'll drop in and cover. And they did that very, very well. And uh, it worked a treat. And, and Joe was great at getting the best out of... He knew what to do with Ailey. He knew what to do with Stan. Because Stan was a little bit... Bless him, I'm going well with Stan. But he was a little bit like... Kevin Keegan, he could have the pet lip on very, very quickly and Joe would know, he fell out with Joe in the dressing room after a game one day and Stan told me the story himself. On the train back, it was a train into London and a train from London up to Newcastle, he, he turned his head away whenever Joe was walking down the corridor or some don't want to talk to you, you didn't look after me during the game or you criticised me at the end of the game a bit. And he would have no to do with Joe. And he said, by the Monday come, and he'd cool down Stan, he thought. Because Joe had a famous temper and was a hard, being a sergeant major, a hard old man. He said, I thought, oh, going on Monday, the, the boss is going to be furious with me. He said, sure enough, he went in on the Monday. Jimmy Green off the train, I went in the dressing room and said, Stan, Gaffer wants to talk to you in his office. So Stan thought, oh. This is me dead, like, you know, he said, and I woke, but, but he was still a bit defiant, you know, I was right, and I uh, have a pet lip on, I was badly done to, and I was right, and walks in Joe's office, and Joe's got a big pot of tea on, uh, two cups, he says, sit down, Skip, he sits down, pours him a cup of tea, he says, how's the Benz? Uh, he said, and, and your dad, I noticed he wasn't at the last game, is he okay, like, and he says, so and so and so. He said, before I knew where I was, never mentioned football at all. Just talked to him for three quarters of an hour about the family, about his dad, 
about everything under the sun. He said, I went out and I thought, hey, Joe's a great, great guy. They ended up, they went on some holidays together. The manager and the, and the skipper, how often do you, would you see that today? They went on holiday as a foursome together. And Joe was so, so clever. That's called man management, Keegan Harrell. There's a lot of people haven't got it. Um, you mentioned there Boyer and Dye. I mean, that was um, <laughs> yes. a great individual players. I, I think there were a few might be surprised to see the, to see them in this list. Yeah, uh, it, it's it, they're the one uh, exception. Uh, it worked individually, but I had to put them in after I talked about Anderson and Eiley, who who didn't like each other. How can you top that? Well, you can top that with two people that actually fought each other. <laughs> and, and played in the same positions as Anderson and Eiley did. And um, in some ways, it epitomised Newcastle United, I felt, around that time. We'd had the Kevin Keegan entertainer's side, which was absolutely magnificent. Uh, and then we fell away badly because we got... We got Dalglish and we got... Uh, Hullet. Hullet. And then Robson, Sir Bobby, revived it. And up we came again. We got as far as third top, regular Champions League football, wonderful games, etc. So we got the revival. And uh, Diane Bowyer were part of that side. It's not so much for the partnership together, but for what they represented at Newcastle. Because they were talented, but... I had a, l a lot to do, more to do with Dyer than Bowyer because I was also covering England a lot at the time and going away to World Cup finals and Dyer was in the England squad. And um, I had a love-hate relationship with Kevin. Uh, I loved his ability. His ability was quite special. He got his head up so early when he received the ball to be able to see things and had that thing we've talked about in the past where you've got split-second extra on the ball to see things that other players don't have and become hurried. He got his head up very quickly and could spot things around him. He had wonderful ability. He was terribly injury-prone, which virtually ruined his career to a certain extent. The bit I disliked about him was he represented all that was irresponsible about that Newcastle United side. Uh, he was a flash, he was round town with, with, with the cars, he was a little Jack the Lad, uh, he was going out with Cheryl, from, you know, Girls Aloud. Uh, in fact, it was Ashley Cole that asked Kieran if he would introduce him to Cheryl because he fancied Cheryl so much and ended up Marina, of course, as you know. Um, but he, 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 was, he was a bling boy, and I felt, I loved his talent, but I felt that they, that clique of bling boys, did Bobby Robson no good whatsoever. Uh, and Kieran admits with hindsight that that was so. Uh, they were called the Brat Pack, and rightly so, there were young lads who strode the town as if they owned the town. Um, he famously refused, as you know, to play outside left of Middlesbrough in a game. We only drew 2-2. And if we'd won that game, 
it was one of the early pre early season games that led to Robson disgracefully getting the sack. If they'd w he played in that game, would won it. He might not have got the sack. But we had at that time the Bling boys. You had Titus Bramble there. They was doing the same thing. Bellamy was part of of that crowd, and hugely talented. Well, not so much Bramble, but certainly Bellamy and and Dyer and 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 yes, Bowyer. But I think they cost. Bobby and um, therefore I was not one of the great lovers of Kieran Dyer but I've often admired his talent since because when you when you lose talent and you see the mundaneness of some people that's around now you often appreciate gems and I think he learned and regrets a lot yeah. of the mistakes that he made from that time but you know and, and of course by the time Dowie and Dyer and uh, Bowyer put on the gloves in the Northern Area flyweight title fight. It was um, Sunes yeah. that, that was in charge because they'd already got rid of, um, of the main man and we were never the same. And of course, it's frightening to take on Sunes because, I mean, Sunes was a bigger lunatic than them. He would have fought anybody at any stage. And that includes Bellamy and it includes Dyer and Bowyer. Um, at the time, but uh, in the main, you know, Bowyer got the um, the criticism and much of the blame for the fight with Dyer, in as much as he instigated. Amazing to think he's a manager these days, isn't <laughs> it? He's now at Birmingham, and 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 uh, that was the, the the style he was on the field. And of course, he'd been involved with Woodgate at um, at Leeds, mm. so he had a bit of a history. But. Uh, um, the sadness at that time was that Newcastle had the potential. Newcastle have lost two huge chances in modern times to become something big. And one was Keegan with the entertainers and one was Robson with, with the young lads. And uh, Keegan took to his toes, Robson was sacked. Uh, and we've had nothing since that's going to remotely touch what those two achieved. And yet, achieved nothing in terms of trophies but um, no Kevin Dyer and Lee Bowie aren't in for what they did together uh, apart from fighting each other but um, they've got to be mentioned the only way you could uh, top Stan Hansen and Jim Eiley being guys that didn't like each other was two guys punching the living daylights out of each other in Newcastle Strip well, there we have it. Thank you for joining us on the latest episode of Gibbo's Call and Newcastle United's greatest ever partnerships. We'll have thrown Boya and Dyer in there um, to show it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, or on YouTube if you're watching and enjoy the rest of your summer.